Let's pray together. Father, we ask for the protection of the blood of Jesus on this horn tonight. We are asking in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit will have freedom of movement even tonight. Father, we just want our hearts changed as we study the Word tonight. We thank you for the living Word of God. We thank you it shows us clearly where we're going. Father, we thank you in these troublesome days. We have an anchor whose name is Jesus. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you he's the good shepherd. He's the shepherd that has never yet lost a sheep. Praise God. And we know never will lose a sheep. We thank you he's able to save to the uttermost those who call upon his name. And we thank you that the fact that he is shepherd tonight means that we can have life and life more abundant. Oh, Father, I just pray tonight that this life abundant may not be used for ourselves, but might be used for your kingdom and your work. Just guide us tonight, Father, as we study these things together and give us clarity in our minds and give me clarity in my explanations. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. There can be no doubt that the greatest of the Old Testament books, as far as prophecy is concerned, is the book of Daniel. And if you were here, last Bible study, then you will know that last time I gave certain reasons to justify the fact that I can stand at the front here and say that Daniel, the great prophet, the great book of the Old Testament, was written in the time that it says it was written, that is, in the 5th and the 6th centuries B.C., You remember last time, I hope, that that was of crucial importance, because if it was written any later, it's a historical book and not a prophetic book. Tonight, I'm assuming you're all convinced that Daniel was written in the 5th and 6th century BC, and therefore, it is a book of prophecy. And therefore, tonight, I'm going to take uh, part of one chapter and a few little bits of another chapter in Daniel to show you how God, through uh, the written word, revealed to Daniel events that were going to occur for 500 years in the future from his time. In fact, he was going on to reveal events which still have not yet come to pass. 2,500 years ago, he revealed them to Daniel. But tonight is important also for another reason. Tonight, we start on a new type of literature found in the Bible. You see, up to now, all the passages we've dealt with have been very straightforward passages, or relatively straightforward passages. And the rule that we established earlier on, that we must take passages in the Bible literally, has been fairly easy to put into practice. But tonight, we see a new type of writing. We see the type of writing that I've called apocalyptic literature. I'll spell the first, A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P. T-I-C, apocalyptic literature. And by apocalyptic literature, I mean literature which uses symbols or pictures. You remember the rule? Let me state it again. All passages in the Bible have to be taken at face value, that is literally, unless they have obvious symbols or obvious picture language involved with them. Now, the only books that have obvious picture language or symbolism, other than a few little pictures that are scattered about, are these. And there are only four of them, and these are the books that you've got to watch. And they are Daniel, first of all, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and those three are Old Testament books, and in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And when you get uh, those books, at some time in the course of the books, you will find that there is apocalyptic literature. In other words, that there are symbols that are used. But these symbols are obviously symbolic representations. Now, of course, when a Christian comes along and sees these symbols, the first reaction is, I don't understand a word. Well, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Why is it that God has used symbols in some parts of the Bible? The answer is very simple, and that is that those parts of the Bible which contain imagery or symbols are private things that only believers have the key to look into. 
You see, there are certain parts of the Bible that any person in the world can read and they can understand very clearly what it's all about. But there are other parts of the Bible where God only wanted to speak to believers. And how he did it was this. He put in symbols. Now the world, the unbeliever, looks at the symbols, has a good laugh. Even though they use symbols themselves, they have a good laugh as far as the word of God is concerned. But the Christian, when he comes to these passages, must know that God wants to reveal something very specific to him. If you take the book of Daniel, for example, do you know that you can divide the book of Daniel into two halves? You've got chapter 1 to chapter 6 inclusive, and you've got chapter 7 to chapter 12. Now, chapter 1 to 6 is easy. Any person can read chapter 1 to 6, and they can understand every word. It's got a dream of Nebuchadnezzar's, right? And Daniel giving the interpretation to the dream, but that's easy. Um, It's got the history of how four children were taken into captivity and taken away to Babylon. You've got the um, nervous breakdown and the insanity that came upon Nebuchadnezzar. You've then got a little letter written by Nebuchadnezzar describing how he came back to his full health. And isn't it wonderful? And Jesus is Lord after all. And then you've got the whole story, you remember, of the Medes and the Persians coming upon Babylon and the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, they're easy. They've got messages for kingdoms. They've got messages for individuals. They've got messages for rulers. But all of a sudden, in Daniel chapter 7, everything changes. And from Daniel chapter 7 to chapter 12, you've got a sort of mysterious type of writing. It's shown clearly to us because of this little fact, that Daniel 7 was written in 553 B.C., which is actually before Daniel 5 and Daniel 6 were written. But the person who wrote the book, Daniel, put all the easy bits together at one end, and he put all the complicated bits at the other end, in the way that a person who's writing to uh, their father and their mother might put two letters in the same envelope, but they make them distinct. And that's what Daniel did. Now, when you come to symbols, and when you come to symbolic literature, don't despair. The first thing that people do when they read the book of Revelation is they think, I just don't understand the word. The key to understanding symbolic literature is this. The more you study and the more you know about the Bible, the more self-evident they become. Yeah, that's it. You will find that the symbols are explained either in other parts of the Bible or God has been gracious enough to put an angel nearby who explains to the man who wrote the book what it actually means. Isn't that nice? Like having a teacher in your cupboard instead of a bank manager. And you just get him straight out of the cupboard and you say, excuse me, what does this mean? I have known Bible uh, scholars or, or people reading their Bible who haven't understood a certain passage. And the amazing thing is that the interpretation to the passage was given just over the other side of the page. And they haven't bothered to read on. They sort of despaired and said, what does this mean? So tonight I'm taking Daniel 7, and we're going to talk about the four monsters of Daniel and understand um, how we interpret passages like this. So would you turn with me, please, tonight to Daniel and chapter 7, where he starts showing Daniel things to come. Daniel and chapter 7. Now, the things we learn tonight are going to be absolutely essential when we come on to the next course of Bible study, when we deal with future events, where a lot of symbolism is used. So if we can really understand how to interpret these passages in Scripture, it's going to be so easy when we come on later on, next year it will be now, I I think, or later on this year, to study eschatology or prophecy related to future events. All right, now let's have a look, first of all, at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. And here we go. Now, let's read the first. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and that dates it at 553 BC. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Now, here's Daniel. He's having a bit of a disturbed night. And in that sort of twilight zone, you're half asleep and half awake, suddenly a dream comes upon him which is really vivid. 
and he dreams the dream. He wakes up in the morning, and it's one of those dreams that you can remember fully. He rushes to a desk, and he starts writing it out for all to see. He's actually seen it all by the time he starts writing it. But his reaction to the dream is also told us. If you go to verse 15, you can see the reaction. In verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He came down and he said, I feel really, really disturbed by the things I've seen tonight. I'm really disturbed by them. I find that I'm quaking inside because they were so monstrous, the things that actually appeared to me. And you'll notice then, verse 16, and this is, by the way, how we know this is symbolic literature, God very graciously gave him someone, not identified clearly, but probably an angel, standing by, who was going to explain what the vision meant to Daniel. Notice verse 16, I came near unto one of them that stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. There it is. So, that in this passage, we have, first of all, the dream, then we've got part of the interpretation. Actually, Daniel understood most of this dream. It was only the last part that he needed help in interpretation over. All right, so he writes down exactly what happened into the dream, in the dream. I like to view this as Daniel watching a cine film with the projectionist standing there. And at certain times, he said, stop the film a minute. And he stops the film, and he says, what does that mean? And the projectionist tells him exactly what it means. Now, if you keep that in mind, it makes it clear what Daniel is living through. All right. Verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And he begins describing the sea. Now, here he is, and you imagine a great sea. The great sea, by the way, is the name that the Hebrews gave to the Mediterranean. He looks down, and he sees a vast expanse of water in front of him, and he knows it's the Mediterranean. Probably it's a bit choppy, but uh, there's not too much movement. And he's gazing at the scene. The sun may have been sparkling on the surface of the waters. Now, before we see what the four winds are, we've got to understand what is the meaning of this thing called the sea. Whenever you see the sea, what actually does it mean? Or the great waters. What is the Bible hinting at when it uses the symbolism of the sea? Get it clear in this passage, it will help you in every other passage. There are two meanings. First of all, the sea represents the beginning of something, right? We talk about Mother Earth. Actually, the Bible talks about Mother Sea, you see, all the time. Mother Sea. When the, in the beginning uh, of, of the earth, as described in the book of Genesis, do you remember the scene? The waters of the deep covered the whole face of the earth. And when God wanted to do something creative and establish something on the face of the earth, the first thing he did was he moved the waters apart to reveal the dry land. That's what he did. So that the sea is the origin of something. After Noah's flood, life didn't re-establish, or civilization didn't re-establish, until after the waters of the flood had gone down. So the sea always means origin. So that when Daniel starts looking at the sea, he knows something's about to happen. That's what it means. But it means something else, and the Bible is very specific. If you turn with me, and now let me give you passages that show what the sea means. Turn with me, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 17, Isaiah and chapter 17, and in verse 12, this isn't as clear as the next verse, but, but let's have a look. Verse 12, we see this. Isaiah says, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. And so it goes on. What's it mean? The sea, waters here, refer to nations and to people. It's clearly stated in Revelation, if you turn now with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. And in verse 1, 
I'm not going to explain who this person is. We'll come on to that next course. But here it is. I will show, this is B, uh, Revelation 17, 1B. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, fortunately, there was an angel standing by. And the angel says, John, I'll tell you what that means. And if you go to verse 15, he describes what the great waters were, what the great sea is. He said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So that we begin with Daniel seeing a picture of all the peoples and the nations and the multitudes and the tongues of the Mediterranean. There they all are. And there's a bit of movement going on. Up to Daniel's time, the Jews were a fairly strong nation. They held their own in the world. God is about to say, Daniel, the Jews have been a major force, but no more. For out of the sea of the nations, something else is going to start coming up and is going to start dominating the scene of the Middle East. And so Daniel has a look. He knows exactly what this is talking about. And you'll notice, if you go back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, that Daniel then sees something else. He sees the sea fairly calm. He looks up and he suddenly sees four winds heading towards the sea. Now, winds in both Greek and Hebrew is, can also be translated as spirits. And I like to think that these are four spiritual forces. He sees four angels heading for the great sea, and they're about to start doing something. And look what it says. And behold, the four winds, or the four spirits of heaven, strove, it says, upon the waters of the great sea. The word strove there actually means to break forth, and it's used of a woman who is pregnant, um, the waters of pregnancy suddenly breaking, bursting forth. In other words, the sea is quite calm, and all of a sudden, these four winds burst forth upon the ocean, and huge waves start passing, a massive storm starts building up, and Daniel sees there's ferment and there's turmoil in the people. Something's happening, something's happening. Disturbance in the Middle East. He stays looking, and all of a sudden, he sees creatures beginning to come out. Verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now remember, he's writing this after he's seen it all, and he's telling us everything that happened. He says, listen, here's what you can expect in case you're squeamish or of a nervous disposition. Four great monsters are going to come up from the sea. That's what he says. And then he goes through each of the monsters, and he identifies for himself who these are. Now, remember, he's standing in the 5th and 6th century BC. Now, I want to go through each of these and show you how we know who these are, because we do know who they are. God is revealing future history to Daniel. All right, the first monster. Here it is. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. All right? Before I come on to the first, there's the characteristics of it, I've got to answer the question, who are these beasts anyway? Who are the beasts? It's all right talking about beasts coming up from the sea, but who are they? Fortunately, the angel tells us who they are. So we don't have to worry or have debates about it. The angel makes it clear. If you go across to verse 17, the angel says this, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms, four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So he says, Daniel, there are four kingdoms coming after you have been on the earth. Four kingdoms are coming. Fine. Go back then to verse 4 and let me read again the description of the first. Here is the first monster. The first kingdom is described like this. Was a lion and had eagle's wings. There it is. A lion and had eagle's wings. Wings. If you read on in these passages, you'll find that three out of four are described as animals. The first three are animals which we can identify and we, which we know. And the question I ask is this, why is it that God should use animals to represent human kingdoms and human empires? The answer is very clear. The answer is this, that all of these animals are, hum are man-eaters. 
They are all animals which were known in the ancient world to be particularly partial to a nice, tasty, mortal morsel. Right? That's what they liked. And what God is trying to say is that although these nations are men, they're going to act like animals, and they will rip nations apart, and there is going to be the most dreadful bloodshed. All right? No nation is going to be safe with these nations around. That's what he says. And so when we come to the first monster, do you see these are two animals, both of which are animals of prey. The first one is the lion, which is known as the king of the jungle, the king of the jungle, known for its strength. And the second one is the eagle, which, of course, is known for its swiftness. So we know this, that the characteristic of the first monster or the first empire is going to be, it's going to be one strong, and two, it's going to be very fast. The question is, who is this? Daniel is fortunate because he knows who this is. It's as perfectly clear. You imagine it. You've got the body of a lion, and it's got two eagle's wings on the back. Well, if any of you go to the British Museum, go down into the Assyriology department, and you've got two of them there. They're tall. They're, they're 12 feet tall. Because the Assyrians, it's not Assyria, but the Assyrians loved uh, that particular symbol. And some of the kings, to show how great they were, showed their head on top of a lion's body with two winged eagles. And when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, right, marched into Assyria, they liked the symbol. They liked it so much that they made it their official emblem. And all over the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, there was a lion's body and eagle's wings, and it represented Babylon, or Chaldea, or Neo-Babylon, whatever name you'd like to give to that empire. The empire, the head of whom was Nebuchadnezzar for several years. And Daniel knew full well that the angel here was giving him the starting point. He lived in that kingdom. He knew which kingdom that was. Fine. And there he is. He's implanted in the kingdom of Babylon. And he says, this is the starting point. So we've got first a lion with eagle's wings. But look, something happens. And here it's quite simple. It says, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. Something happens and the wings are removed or clipped so that all of a sudden this strange monster can't dash around in the way that it was. And he knows full well that the Babylonian Empire was gradually going to slow down until it wasn't making any more conquests at all. It was going to slow its expansion right down. And when he looks, something else happens. This is the history of Babylon being given to Daniel beautifully so that he could understand this was easy for Daniel. It was a walkover. Look what it says. The lion then was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man. That doesn't mean to say it looked like a man. It's a lion. It was over on all fours. And now it's up on its hind legs. Now, can you see? That means that it's going to become cumbersome. A lion standing on two legs is just ridiculous. You see them at the circuses, don't you? Balancing. They're an object of fun. And that's all. And what he's saying is this magnificent creature is going to become so unwieldy, so unworkable, that it's not going to be, get it, be able to get anywhere. And its expansion is going to be stopped simply because it gets sort of cumbersome in its actions. And more than that, it says, and the heart of a man was given to it. Instead of a lion's heart, which knew no fear at all, a timid, human, frail heart was going to be given to it. In other words, God was saying, here you are, Daniel, in 553, have no hopes for Babylon. For Babylon, he, he, he is saying, is going to lose its nerve. Babylon is going to become even more overweight, even more unbalanced, even more cumbersome than you know it. Don't have any hope as far as that's concerned. And there, to Daniel, was an easy picture. There was Babylon. All right, now he sees Babylon fade away, and as he looks again, out of this stormy sea, another animal starts rising. And here's the animal, I'll read it through, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. And it raised, a bear, by the way, man-eating again. And it raised itself up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, 
devour much flesh. All right. Actually, Daniel saw this empire just come in upon the historical scene. But here it is, a bear suddenly comes up. Oh, please don't be surprised at this imagery. Have you ever heard the Russian bear? We use it exactly today like that, and we mean something about Russia when we say it. Have you heard of the British lion, or the British bulldog, or the German eagle, or the Chinese dragon? These are pictures we use to demonstrate something about each one of those uh, those nations. And so a bear comes up, but this bear is very strange. It has two features which identify it clearly to any person who is a Bible scholar or any person living in the day who was looking to see who the bear was. It comes up and it's lopsided, like this. Lopsided in that type of pattern. One shoulder is above the other shoulder. And suddenly it comes up, this huge bear, but it's all up on one side and down on the other. Now what does that mean? To show you what it means, keep your finger in the place and go to Daniel 8. And we'll see exactly the same empire. And this time, it's described in different terms. Now, here's another animal. Don't let it confuse you. We're on the bear tonight. But verse 3 describes exactly the same, the same empire. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher came up last. Ah. So here you've got a lopsided ram. Not a lopsided bear, a lopsided ram. One huge horn and one small horn. Fortunately for us, in Daniel chapter 8, it tells us exactly what this is. So if you go across to verse 20, there's a kind angel who's telling him exactly what it is. Verse 20 of Daniel 8, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, instead of a lopsided horn situation, you've got lopsided shoulders. That's all it means. And what is it about the Medes and the Persians that shows us about this lopsided nature? What is it? It's very simple. Simply this, that the Medes and the Persians were two nations. Actually, Cyrus, who was half Mede and half Persian, lived in Persia. And he marched into Media and took it the thing over, took Media over, and then said, all right, he said, look, I'm half Median, we'll form an alliance. We won't call ourselves Persia, we'll call ourselves Medo-Persia. Wouldn't that be nice? Two horns, you see, a level-shouldered bear. But the trouble was, as the conquest went on, soon the Medes were forgotten out of the picture. And the Persians became the big one. The big horn is Persia, the little horn is Media, and soon people forget about the little horn. The upright shoulder, the one, the highest shoulder, is Persia. The low one is Media. All right, now that's not the only sign that we've got. There is a second sign. And so in Daniel 7 verse 5, it says this. Not only was it lopsided, but the bear had three ribs in its mouth, in the mouth, between its teeth. Here. In other words, the scene of this bear is it's just finished a meal and it's just licking the final ribs. That's the picture. You see a man-eater. And this shows us clearly that by the time this group of people is about to become a great empire, three nations will have fallen already. So Daniel's looking out. And by the time Cyrus marches into Babylon, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you listen to my tape on the fall of Babylon. By the time he marches in, he's able to count up. One, two, three, is this the bear? And sure enough, the Persian Empire, or the Medo-Persian Empire, is the bear. Who were the three that actually Cyrus had conquered by the time um, he was ready to expand his empire? The first one was Media itself. And by the way, they didn't give up with the fight, even though he got a, an alliance with them. The second one was Lydia, L-Y-D-I-A, with the great king Croesus, who was above it, and they had a big fight as well. And the third one, before the big expansion of Persia, was Babylon itself. And the picture given of this Persian bear is of three nations already devoured, and it's getting quite comfortable with those three. It quite likes having those three. But you notice what happens. Then, all of a sudden, someone starts speaking to it, and it says this, What are you doing sitting there eating the spare ribs? Don't you know there's good meat still around? It says, don't delay. It says, arise and devour much flesh. 
And after Babylon had fallen, that was the time of greatest expansion as far as the Persian Empire was concerned. It then went on and took over the rest of the Middle East. It took over Egypt and vast other areas as well into Asia Minor. All right? Now there, for Daniel, as soon as he saw what had happened, he knew that the Persian bear was upon him. Everything else from this point is future as far as Daniel was concerned. You see, the Persian Empire lasted 200 years. But God doesn't stop just with Daniel. He's marching on beyond Daniel's times. All right, verse 6 gives us then the third creature. And all of these things have meaning. Verse 6, after this I beheld, and a third creature comes up, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Now, as we've seen, um, the, the wings mean swiftness, always. I'd better show you that, I think, hadn't I? Do you remember in the first empire, that was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, it was described as a lion and, and an eagle. To show you that an eagle or these wings represent swiftness, would you turn with me to Jeremiah 4? Jeremiah chapter 4, so that we'll really get this. Jeremiah 4. And here are two descriptions, by the way, of Nebuchadnezzar, just confirming what I've said, of course, that the lion and the eagle together represent Nebuchadnezzar. In Jeremiah 4, verse 7, Zion is warned, and he says this, The lion is come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 13 his chariots are described and look. Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariot shall be as, as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. There it is. And wings, and especially eagles' wings, represent swiftness. Now what does it mean then if a leopard has four wings on, it, on its back? I'll tell you what it means. It means that whoever this is, the conquest is going to be very, very fast indeed. You see, the leopard is one of the fastest members of the mammal family uh, or, the, or the mammal group uh, as far as land uh, travel is concerned. One uh, closely related member of the leopard family is, of course, the cheetah, the hunting leopard. And the cheetah is the fastest known creature on land today. The fastest known mammal, certainly, on land today. Some cheetahs have been known to, go, uh, to run at speeds above 60 miles an hour. So just by showing as a leopard, it means speed anyway. But the wings on the, ma the back means it's not just going to go at leopard speed, you know. It's going to be even faster than a leopard. Well, of course, there's only one empire that that could be. There's only one empire where the main man in it conquered the, the known world in under 10 years, and that's Greece under Alexander the Great. Do you know it took the Persians 35 years to conquer their empire, it took Alexander under 10 years to conquer an empire which was bigger than the Persian Empire. There we are. Now that is speed. So the speed of this leopard shows us clearly that this happens to be Greece. But there's something else. Uh, in the, the last part of verse 6, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given unto it. Now, in order to understand that, I'm going in to Daniel chapter 8 again. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. And in verse 5, we have another animal, but I'm staying with the leopard. And this time it's a goat. The goat in Daniel 8 represents the same as the leopard in Daniel 7, Greece. And notice what it says. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west. The west of the Mediterranean, that's Greece. Greece certainly west of Babylon, certainly west of Persia. Out of Greece, here it is, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. Here's a picture of a goat charging so fast that his feet don't touch the ground. Zooms into Asia. That's exactly the picture. Very emotive. But look, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. One notable horn. If you go down to verse 8... Therefore, the he-goat waxed very strong, and when he was, he was strong, the great horn was broken, 
In other words, the he-goat rushes forward, gets ever so strong, but all of a sudden, when he's full of strength, the main horn is snapped off from his head. And then it says, um, it was broken, and for it, instead of it, that should be, came up four notable horns towards the four winds of heaven. All right, again, I don't have to tell you what that is. The angel tells you what that is. Verse 21. Verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grisha. That's Greece. The king of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, you know surely enough about Alexander the Great to understand what happened. He rushed into Asia. He conquered the whole world. And just as he was preparing to do more, he died. At the age of 32 years and eight months old, Alexander died. The notable horn, the main one, was snapped off at the height of his power. All right. And we're told in Daniel 8 that four horns come up instead. Now, a horn or a head means exactly the same, the king. You notice the notable horn is the first king. It means a king or kingdom. And the same is true of the heads as found in Daniel 7. So back to Daniel 7, and can you see that this beast, this leopard, had four heads. Now, all I have to do is give you some history. When Alexander died, Alexander the Great, what happened to his empire? The answer is, it was split up between four generals. And they split up the whole of Greece and they established four kingdoms out of the land of Greece, all right, or the empire of Greece. Let me write these out for you so that we can see them. The first man I mentioned is Seleucus, S-E-L-E-U-C-U-S. Seleucus. And Seleucus, who was one of the generals, took the area around Syria. The area of Syria. The second one was Ptolemy, spelt with a P and a T. P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. And he took Egypt. I think in past tapes we've seen that Cleopatra was descended from Ptolemy. And therefore Cleopatra was not Egyptian. She was a Greek. That was asked, I think, on a general knowledge quiz a few weeks ago. But there we are. Ptolemy, he got Egypt. The third one was Lysimachus. L-Y-S-I-M-I-C-U-S. Lysimachus. And Lysimachus took Asia Minor. That is the area of Turkey today. And the last one, Cassander, C-A-S-S-A-N. D-E-R, he took the homeland, Macedonia. All right, that's northern Greece. He took Macedonia. And after Alexander died, the whole of the Greek empire was split up into four areas. And it continued then for 150 years in four main areas. Now, can you see? This is amazing. In the 5th century, specifically, B.C., this is revealed to Daniel that this vast leopard would actually have four heads governing it, and for most of its, its period on the earth, four rulers actually ruled over the territory. Fine. Now that's number six. The third monster that comes up, this four-headed leopard, is the kingdom of Greece, the empire of Greece. In verse seven, the nightmare bit of the dream begins. And with verse 7, I find myself in trouble because actually this strays onto the territory that I'm going to deal with in the next course. That is future prophecy. So I've got, of course, to restrain myself tonight and not go right through these things. Don't be impatient. We'll get there. I'll devote a whole tape to the fourth monster. But let's see just enough to whet our appetites. Verse 7. After this, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. It looks like nothing on earth, so he can't relate it to an animal. And he's really disturbed by this beast. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue of the people, that is, with the feet of it, And it was diverse, which means different, from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 8 actually is future prophecy even today. But, can you see, this one was different. All the others were animals. This one was different and frighteningly different. How was it different? Well, for a start, it wasn't all natural. It had iron teeth. Iron is a man-made metal. You know, you can't get uh, iron just by going and picking up a lump. I suppose there are a few lumps of almost pure iron about. But generally in the ancient world, they had to uh, put it, you know, melt it down to get the iron out. Here was a beast that had man at the very root of its evilness. That was the point. The others just used to kill because of instinct. You see, if, if a wild animal kills something, it does it not because it's wicked in any way. It does it through sheer instinct. And all the other nations around, although they went around killing people, God lets them off slightly. But this one, he says, look, the evilness comes because of the involvement of man somewhere in the middle of this empire. Now, Daniel's so disturbed about this fourth monster, this is the only one he asks about. He more or less understands the others. He is really disturbed. So if you go across to verse 19... Then this is Daniel, and he says this, Then I would know, this is Daniel seven nineteen. I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and look at this, another detail, his nails, that's his claws, were of brass, it says in the King James Version, bronze is how it should be translated. In the NIV, I think it's bronze. Bronze, an alloy, a man-made alloy were its claws. And he says, what's this? Which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head. Now here's a monster, and ten horns have come up. Now what are horns? They're kings. So somewhere about this animal, there are going to be ten kings somewhere. But notice this. And of the other which came up, an eleventh comes up a bit later than the other. And guess what happens? Three of the original horns are plucked up by the roots and chucked out. So this tells us something, that ten kings are going to exist, an eleventh is going to rise, and he's going to battle with three of the kings and defeat them. That's what we, we know. So he ends up then, finally, with eight kings. This is all future. I will explain who these kings are in a future talk. But I'm just doing that for completeness. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. And verse 23 is what the angel says. He says, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. The first was Babylon. The second was Persia. The third was Greece. And which was the fourth kingdom? We know from history. It was Rome. Rome came up and was diverse from all the others. Now it says this, a fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And after shall uh, rise after them, sorry, and another shall rise after them and he shall be different from the first and he shall subdue three kings. And then it goes to give more details. The question I have to ask is this. How was the Roman Empire different from the other empires that went before? For it was different in one particular way. In the first three empires, all the kings of the empires worshipped gods. In the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire alone, the Caesars put themselves up as gods. A god was said to have the perfect way to run a society. A god was said to have the right over man's life, a total right outside the law. Now, you see, the king of Persia, he was the one who had to obey the laws of the Medes and the Persians. The king of Greece had to obey the laws of Greece. The king of the Babylonian Empire, he had to obey the laws of the Babylonian Empire. But the Roman Caesars were a law unto themselves. 
Do you know that two of the best Caesars, uh, Tiberius and Vespasian, they didn't want to be a god. They said, what, uh, this, um, Tiberius actually said to the Senate, he said, I'm not a god. He said, I'm a man. What are you treating me like this for? And Vespasian, on his deathbed, turned to his doctor and said, I suppose I'm going to be a god now. You see, they didn't like it. But nevertheless, they were treated by everyone as gods. And some liked it very much. Two maniacs who came from the Roman Empire were Caligula and Nero. Caligula, who was a madman, and Nero, who was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Christians. Do you know that Nero crucified thousands of Christians all around his palace, covered them with tallow, and set fire to them to illuminate one of his parties? And nothing and no one could stop him. It was deliberate. He was above the law. And it's that frightening fact that is the difference in Rome, that Rome has no fear of anyone. It puts itself up as a god. Why do I say then that this strays into the territory of future history? Isn't it so that Rome was already dead? Surely wasn't Rome destroyed in 476 AD, wasn't it? Why am I talking in terms that this is still a danger? I'll tell you why. Because Rome may be dead, but it has yet a future, and a future which some of us may see beginning. To show you that, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. I'll be dealing with this in detail. This is one of the most astounding facts and one of the things I have to warn you about. Rome is still around, dormant, but definitely still around. And listen, the Rome that is coming is as bad as anything we have seen before. It will have the name of, I do good things around the land. I produce peace all over the earth. I produce welfare. I produce wonderful systems. No one is going to be short of bread or anything like this under me. But it will hate God. It will hate the Lord Jesus Christ. It will persecute and torment the believers of that day. It is future. Here is John. He sees the vision as well, which frightens him. He stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast. This is another beast, right? This is a beast that represents all the empires that have ever been. Having seven heads. Who are the seven heads? It's seven empires. You count up the empires that have affected the Jews. You'll find there are seven, including the one that's coming. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the seventh is yet to come. This beast is all the empires and all their knowledge rolled into one. Do you know our society has inherited things from the Babylonians and from the Persians and from the Greeks and from the Romans? We are actually the present manifestation of all these past empires. That's what this represents. All right, seven heads, and it's got ten crowns, ten kings. These are the ten kings that we've seen in Daniel 7 that I'm not going to talk about tonight. There they are. And upon his head the name of blasphemy. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw, and isn't this amazing, this? We've talked about a leopard, we've talked about a bear, and we've talked about a lion, and look at this. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as, 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 as the mouth of a lion. What does it mean? It's going to be influenced by Babylon, by uh, Persia, and by Greece more than any other. Our present society has been influenced by those three empires more than any other. When I come onto this in detail, I'll tell you exactly what part of our system has come from those empires. And here is a manifestation of those three in another beast that's coming out. And look at this. And the dragon, who is identified later on as Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And verse 3 is the frightening verse, as far as we are concerned, or as far as the world is concerned. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. One of these heads, one of the empires, died in the most tragic manner. That's Rome. Rome died. For all the world to see, Rome died and was obliterated. 
But don't stop there. Look what it says. But in this future time that John's talking about, his deadly wound was healed. Rome is going to come up again. And people are going to be amazed. Staggered. Oh, it won't be in quite the crude form that we've known it before, but it's going to be Rome just the same, and we will know. We will know when it comes up. His deadly wound was healed, and it's so miraculous, the re-emergence of Rome, the re-emergence of this fourth monster, that look what happens. All the beast wondered after, sorry, all the world wondered after the beast. Wondered after means admired. It means that it's such an impressive monster that the world starts worshipping this monster. They start living for it. They start putting their livelihood into it. Except for the believers of the day who are devoured, who are trampled, who are smashed under the feet of this great monster. All right, I'll be talking about that, those future events uh, in the next course. All I want you to know is this. Daniel received from the Lord detailed knowledge enough to make him and us identify the four empires that were coming upon the face of the earth. And as he did, as he did, for us it shows that there is a God who is not only the God of prophecy, but the God of history. Praise God. A God who reveals himself and reveals his plans even to mortal man, not just to his beloved servant Daniel, but even to the likes of us standing here just before a general election in 1979. The wonderful news that he also adds is this, that the believers are safe. Praise God. The believers are protected. The believers are given grace. The Holy Spirit is upon them those who are obedient to the word of God, those who submit to the spirit of God in those days will find a place of refuge and a place of safety. It's frightening what's coming upon the world, but it's glorious what's coming upon us. It will be a rapture of great joy that is going to be our portion. But that too is a future subject. God bless you. Amen.